Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. All good things to believe in, and I hope that you believe. Take your Bible now with me tonight and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel in your Bible with me this evening. Um, weeks ago, just prior, I think, to the Christmas season and all of the different things, I promised you that I would do a continuation of a sermon that I preached back then on a Sunday night, and because of one thing or another, it hasn't, I haven't gotten around to it. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a recap. Some of you maybe were not here for that sermon. Now, I'm not just gonna recap the whole sermon uh, tonight, because then that would be just repeating that sermon. But if you want the full uh, force of the message, the two-message series, uh, you need to go online and look for a sermon I've simply entitled Control, Control Number One. And we talked about, I think it's on, online, it's called Malignant Control. That's a great word, malignant control. And we were talking about the idea that there is in some people an impulse to desire to control other people in a non-biblical way, okay? It is, by the way, it is an extremely dangerous impulse. And it, it, when we talk about this, it's a little bit sensitive, it's a little bit touchy, because some people will say, well, Pastor Monty, you have to have control over some things. Absolutely, I could not agree more. Uh, pastoring a Baptist church, you have to have control over certain things, and, and within your home and your family and what takes place under your roof. All those things, you have to have those in control. And I'm not talking about a reasonable level of control that maintains biblical normalcy. I'm not, not talking against that on any level. But what I am talking about is the tendency for some to want to control everything about another person. Okay, this could be a husband who is extremely controlling over his wife, down to every little detail. It could be a wife who is controlling of her husband. That's not uncommon, especially today. It could be, and this is something that many of us can relate to, it could be where parents have exerted such control over the minute details of their children's life that it has pushed them toward rebellion. We're gonna get into that a little bit. You know, the Bible does say, fathers provoke not your children to wrath, okay? And in some cases, I'm very certain about this, and I could give illustration of it. In some cases, uh, parents who want to control the minutia of everything can push their children to wrath. There is a control level that is malignant. Now, having said that, right out of the outset, because we're gonna look at the example, as I promised weeks ago, we'll be looking at the example of King Saul, one of the most controlling characters in the Old Testament. And right out of the starting gate, though, I want to be clear about this. It is not something to say you should just allow people to be free range, your children especially, do whatever they want, let it all hang out. We don't believe in that. But what we also don't believe in is a level of control that gets into the minutia to the extent that it causes our kids to rebel or it causes our kids to have wrath. And so there is in this whole issue a real sense of balance, okay? Uh, we are to train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. A husband, this is gonna surprise some of you all, demonstrated from the Bible. A husband is to have a sanctifying love for his wife that enables her to stand spotless before the Lord Jesus. What? Oh yeah, we'll see that in the Bible in just a little bit. That's part of his godly influence, okay? But it is not achieved by control. Let, let me say this as well. A wife is to have a voice into her husband's heart, but not by manipulation. 
there's a difference here. And what we see so many times in life is this line is crossed today. Why do you think that's the case? I'm thinking about this, and there's a background to what I'm saying. Why do I think this is the case? Because we have become accustomed as a society to being manipulated. Think about that for a moment. Every time you turn on the television, which frankly has now become a minor player in manipulation, but every time you turn on the television, there's something manipulative happening. Every time you look at social media, you're being manipulated. Oh, Pastor Monty, I'm, I'm only looking at my friends. We all know that's not true, but then the second thing is this. You're manipulated by an algorithm that directs you to look and continue looking. And we've become a, a society that is so used to being manipulated, we hardly see it when it's happening. And what's worse than that? We become experts in manipulation ourselves in seeking to control either a large situation or a relationship situation. So very quickly, just by way of review, last time I said this. I said then, and I'm just going to list these quickly. There are characteristics of controlling people. Now, now, let me tell you this. In my experience as a pastor and my experience as a, a counselor, if you even suggest to someone that they may be too controlling, you will get an immediate and dramatic negative reaction. Okay, I've just, that's just been my experience. So I'm not trying to diagnose anyone in the auditorium tonight, but, but maybe a little self-diagnosis. See if you see yourself, okay, and what the, the characteristics. Let me quickly mention them. Uh, blaming and criticism. Number one, blaming and criticism. People have a, a, a want to blame someone else and criticize. Oftentimes, there's a manipulative control. In other words, if I can blame or I can criticize, I can pressure someone to do according to my will. That often happens in marriages. Um, number two, isolation or intimidation. Isolation says, well, I'm going to keep people away from other people because my control feature, what I want them to do, may be problematic with this other person. In other words, the influence of another person may harm my ability to control. In abusive relationships, isolating and intimidating is always a factor. I want you to know that. And gentlemen, by the way, if you're involved, uh, well, Pastor, I just, I just can't stand it that my wife has any friends. Wow. Are you ever a weirdo, okay, for saying that? Well, I just, I, I just think all of the attention ought to be upon me. <laughs> you know why it's not? Because you're the way you are. She's got to have friends. Isolation and intimidation, that's part of control. Uh, another one, and by the way, I, I picked these up through research earlier. Another one, unpredictability, okay? Controlling people like to keep people guessing, they like to sometimes come in like all the sunshine in the world, and then they, uh, then they come in like all the clouds in the world. Keeps people guessing, keeps people on their toes a bit, keeps you in the spotlight. Controlling people often are involved in denial and gaslighting. By the way, everything I'm saying, we're going to see in the life of Saul. They will either deny something or, in the case of confrontation, they will turn it around and accuse someone else of having the problem, not themselves. Now, fundamentally, controlling people are insecure because they have fears. Their fear and insecurity promotes their manipulation and their control. And, and this, when I get to that later on, I think you're going to see precisely what I'm talking about. It's a very important point. And then, of course, controlling people have an utter, utter disregard for boundaries. They don't ever think about boundaries. By the way, 
In our society, boundaries have been obliterated by cell phones. Folks, that's a dangerous thing. It's a distracting thing. Well, Pastor Monty, I texted him seven seconds ago, and I have yet to receive a reply. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. Keep some boundaries. When I was a kid, my parents would never let me telephone anyone around supper time. How many had parents like that? And I thought that was weird. Well, come on, Mom. And my mother would, nope, they're eating supper. They're eating supper. By the remember, way, remember the good old days when families used to eat supper together? Those were the good old days. Okay, what was my mother teaching me? Some boundaries. Those have been completely obliterated. I think, personally, they should be reestablished. And by the way, let me make a statement here. Uh, if an individual has decided to reestablish his or her own boundaries for whatever reason, that is that person's right. Okay, understand that. Oh, Pastor, I'm so offended I didn't get an immediate response. You, you may not sometimes. That's okay. Don't be offended by it. So those are some characteristics. Now, 1 Samuel 15, look at your Bible, verse number 1. 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord hath sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, uh, slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. You say, Pastor Monty, that sounds like genocide. You would be correct. God ordered that. Why? The Amalekites were a hybrid race. What? I know some of you just woke up. Come to my Genesis class and find out more. That was a cheap, self-serving, self-promoting moment. All right, (laughs) verse verse number four. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them to Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Hivalah as thou comest unto Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now the commandment was to wipe them all out. But he kept the king. And that would have been very customary at that time, except that was not his orders from the Lord. He kept the king alive. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag in disobedience to the Lord's command. And the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. This is a classic case of selective obedience. Keep the king alive as a trophy of war and keep everything that has any level of value to it. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he is turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul, 
came to, me, came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, now this is the, the famous meeting between Saul and, and the prophet Samuel. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, note the next words of King Saul, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, look at me. Yes or no question. Did Saul perform the full commandment of the Lord, yes or no? No, very simple. He spared the best of what we call the spoils of war. And he spared King Agag in direct opposition to what the Lord had told him to do. And yet when confronted by the prophet, who already knew these things by divine revelation, when confronted by the prophet, what did Saul do? He immediately justified himself. Hey Samuel, good to see you, just to let you know, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And he was hoping for a change in subject. As a controlling individual, Saul used self-justification, listen carefully, to rewrite the narrative. It is very difficult for Saul to act in humility. He has been, and we'll see that later on in the passage. And so he justifies his actions even though his actions were incomplete obedience. Well, Pastor Monty, it, it, it's obvious to all. It will become more obvious in the passage. It's obvious to all what happened. I, I couldn't agree more. But an individual who wants to control the narrative has to justify himself at every turn. And the very fact that Saul's first words to Samuel were, Samuel, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, speaks to everyone of the fact that he had not. If he had performed the commandment of the Lord, it would not be necessary for him to rewrite the narrative. So we see in that a level of self-justification. Often people who control can't admit when they're wrong or they struggle with any kind of issue. You know, husband and wife, marital issues, okay? Let me ask you gentlemen something. Can you admit when you're wrong or do you have to make up some self-justifying reason for what you did? In relationship issues, let me ask you this, beyond marriage, can you admit when you're wrong? Or do you have to line up all your argumentation and perhaps even alter the narrative slightly to make sure it fits? If you do, that's a strong mark of being a controlling person. Do you know, the Bible says clearly, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you struggle with admitting your failures, you're not a very good Christian. If you, well, Pastor Juan, I, 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 I have to present a certain persona, and that's the problem. The idea that someone has to continually justify themselves in order to maintain their standing actually diminishes their standing. Because while the words were coming out of Saul's mouth, I think the heart of the prophet broke. He knew the truth. There was self-justification. So uh, looking down, verse number 13, he said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Look at verse number 14. 
And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? The din of the animals testified against the declaration of the king. And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Now, now note this, they did it. They did it. They have brought them from the Amalekites, and, and for the people spared the best of the sheep. Now, notice what's happening here. Do you see this? It's called blame shifting. He is the king. He could have given clarity in the commandment to do precisely what the Lord had instructed him. And in fact, that was his responsibility. But he said, the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, to sacrifice unto the... Oh, there it is. To sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now notice that. It was an excuse... It was blame-shifting, and then it was dripping with piety. Controlling people, again, have difficulty taking responsibility. There are a lot of of men, and I'm, I'm not just trying to get on the men tonight, okay? But men, let's just understand what's good for us. That there are a lot of men who struggle with taking the blame for anything. Some people are very judicial, about blame. You know, Pastor Monty, we've got to line up all the facts and figure out who's to blame. You know, I've come to a conclusion in my life over 56 years. Most of the time, I'm to blame. <laughs> come to that conclusion. I've been, been married over 30 years, so that's the conclusion you come to. Um, it's a wise conclusion because it staves off argumentation, but uh, blame shifting takes place when an individual cannot own up to his own problem, okay? Um, Jack, I'm going to use, can I use an illustration about you? A good one, okay. This happened years ago, you won't remember it. You won't remember it, okay. We were in a deacon's meeting, and uh, there was uh, some silly little assignment you'd been given to look into something. I don't remember what it was. I have no clue what it was. Uh, The previous month, you said, okay, guys, I'll look into this, okay. And then the the next month's deacon's meeting came around, so that was an, an agenda item. And I asked you, if you'd, what, what did you find out about that? Jack, you said something I'll never forget. You said this, you said, guys, I have no excuse, I just didn't do it. I'm sorry, I'll get it done next month, but it was my responsibility and I didn't get it done. And you just went on like that for just a little, just a little bit. That made, Jack, that made a huge impression upon me. I'll never forget that because here is a man, a business owner, a very successful man, someone who loves the Lord who was honest enough to say, I just didn't do it. And in that moment, Jack, your stock in my eyes raised, it it rose, it rose phenomenally. And by the way, in the eyes of the other men, because there's something about excuses that always ring hollow. Years ago, I heard an evangelist say this, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And a worse excuse is when I blame somebody else for what was my responsibility. But a controlling individual who has to maintain a certain narrative, he will do that. But look at the next one. Drop down to verse 16 as the story continues. Then Samuel said unto Saul, so Samuel's claiming he utterly destroyed everything except the best things because we're going to have church with the best things. Then Samuel said unto Saul, stay. I will tell thee what the Lord hath said unto me this night. And he said to him, Stay, say on. So Samuel's about to tell Saul the message. And Samuel said, now note these words, When thou wast little in thine own sight, thou, when thou wast little in thine own sight, thou not made the head of, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel. 
and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. Pause there. When thou wast little in thine own sight. A third characteristic of a controlling individual is pride. It is pride. In other words, this person has to be in control, and to feel any less of control means that he is less of an individual. Pastor Monty, what are you talking about? Anyone who is a micromanager is precisely this way. They have to micromanage and control everything lest something happen that would hurt their pride. Now, gentlemen, again, just talking to us, we've got some pride, don't we? And sometimes we feel like if we don't control everything that happens, everything that is done, everything that is said, somehow it will hurt our pride. Or this, or this, maybe someone in the workplace does it better, says it better, accomplishes it better, and that hurts our pride. Some time ago, I think Pastor Moore spoke on this in our Wednesday night, and part of the idea was that pride is often a fundamental uh, impetus for the sin in our lives, and it probably is a foundational sin in our lives. In this case, the prophet Samuel was saying, look, Saul, you're very prideful. You're an individual with self-justifying tendencies. You blame shift, and then your pride won't let you admit you have made a huge mistake. When you were little, God exalted you, but now that you've arisen and your pride has increased, God will debase you. Continuing on, verse number 18. And the Lord sent thee, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, continuing the conversation, and the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Samuel is reminding Saul of the words of the Lord. Wherefore, knowing the information you had, a clear command from God, wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? but did fly upon the spoil, that means to jump upon it with greed, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. Why would you do that? Verse number 20, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, let me ask you that question again. Had Saul obeyed the voice of the Lord? No, he had not. But look what he says. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Pastor Monty, I mean, Saul is speaking against clear reality. Saul is, now listen carefully, Saul is telling Samuel, who sees right through the situation with great clarity and the sheep and the oxen bleating and lowing in his ears, he's saying to Saul, Saul, You've got it all wrong. Hold on to that thought, continuing in verse number 20. Saul said unto Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord has sent me, and have brought Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Oh, wait a minute. The statement was, destroy them all. But Saul said, well, Samuel... I did precisely what God said. And Samuel's hearing the animal ruckus, and he's looking at Agag over there, bound maybe hand and foot. No. Do you know what that is called? Look at me. That is called gaslighting. How many have heard that term? It's a term I've only come across in the last few years. Gaslighting is when someone who wants to control a narrative, which, as you can tell, was certainly Saul's desire in the passage. 
Gaslighting is when someone presents their perspective, even if it is not reality, they present it as real. In other words, they are the one who is the guilty party. And yet to save face, to save standing, and to maintain the narrative, that person will say, oh, you've got it all wrong. Samuel, I did exactly what I was told to do. When Samuel knows it's not the truth. Now, let me say, that can be done in a very subtle way that is manipulation and ultimately control. You say, Pastor, what, what do you mean? In this passage, Saul was trying desperately to control Samuel's thinking, to control his view. And potentially, if he could do that with the prophet, he maybe could control the outcome. And when all of the evidence was stacked against him, that he had not performed the commandments of the Lord, Saul looks at Samuel and essentially says this, Samuel, you've got it all wrong. You're crazy. There's something wrong in your thinking. Your perception is not right, though all of the evidence pointed the other way. When we talk about controlling individuals, this is something they are extremely good at. They turn it around. Does everyone know what I mean by turn it around? They, they turn it around on you. All of a sudden, uh, wait a minute, you're the one with the problem, and they turn it around. And they tell you that they're not the one with the problem. You are because you don't perceive this. Now, now again, this is frequently seen in the marriage relationship. And it's a very dangerous thing. It's a little, it's a little convicting. Because sometimes all we want to do is control a narrative so badly that we change the narrative. This is exactly what Saul is doing. Change the narrative and say, in generality, I did exactly what I needed to do. He was willing to argue, but taking arguing to another level, he was willing to gaslight and say, Samuel, what do you mean? I didn't obey. I did obey. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a desperate attempt to control. Understand that. Very, very dangerous. This is a sign of uh, Saul's controlling behavior, and it is very dangerous. So, but verse number, let's look at verse 22, because the story continues. Verse number 22. The Bible says this. Samuel argued, pardon me, Saul argued that he had obeyed the voice of the Lord in verse 21. Verse 20, uh, pardon me, verse 20. In verse 21, he said, The people took the sheep, blaming them again, the chief things that should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice the Lord in Gilgal. That statement is made. Then Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, and you're, this is a very famous verse, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For... Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We often quote the verse, that first part of that verse. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We forget, though, that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. When I dig in my heels, I sometimes make an idol of myself. I make an idol of my own opinion. I make an idol of my own position. I make an idol of my own perspective. And sometimes I'm willing to sacrifice some of the most valuable relationships in life just so I can be right. Continuing on. 
Samuel said, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. Well, that's good news. Finally, there's a realization. Finally, there is a reasonable confession, we would think. Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And thy words, because I, uh uh-oh, feared the voice of the people and obeyed their voice. Now, what did we say in the beginning, which was really a recap of last time? We said that a controlling personality is often based in insecurity. Saul was a big guy. He stood head and shoulders above all the others in Israel. That was one of the things people admired about him as king. He was physically a very strong man. The Bible portrays him as being a very handsome man. He was everything you think would have given him some level of confidence, but deep down inside, he had fear and insecurity. Deep down inside, he had to control the narrative. Deep down inside, he had to wait all these verses until he finally admits that he was wrong. Deep down inside, he had to pass the blame onto somebody else. And deep down inside, he had to finally admit My motivation was fear. My motivation was insecurity. I'm going to take a couple minutes to go kind of deep here. Because often people are motivated by their insecurities, by their own fears. Someone may, and let's, can I talk about the ladies for a moment? Ladies, would you give me permission? Come on. Give me permission, or we'll just go home right now, okay? Thank you. You know, sometimes ladies have certain insecurities that in order to satisfy those insecurities, they manipulate to have a certain outcome or level of control. Now listen carefully, this, please listen carefully. But by the way, men have our weaknesses too, so I'm not, I'm not getting mad at the ladies, but sometimes I have to be practical, okay? So, let's use this as an illustration. I'm being as sensitive as I can. If, if someone is an introvert, did you know that I'm not an introvert? <laughs> you figured that out. But if, if, so, if someone is an introvert, that's fine by the way, do you know why? We need somebody to do the thinking, okay, while we're doing the talking. Got to have that, okay? Got to. Callie would admit she's an introvert. So, so people energize me. I love being around people. They energize me. But they wear her out, okay? That's just the difference. How many introverts in the room? This is no criticism. Okay, yeah, yeah, an introvert, okay? However, if an introvert, if you take it beyond the personality idea and move it into the idea of an insecurity, then that person can feel more comfortable if they're not around people. And so what they'll do is they'll pull back from anything. Now, not initially. Everything's fine, but the older they get, the less they like people. I, I get that as I age. And uh, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. And, uh, and so they, they pull back. And so rather than go to that social event, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And they keep pulling back. Why do they do that? 
because perhaps their introversion has graduated, this doesn't always happen, but perhaps it has graduated to a mild form of agoraphobia. What is agoraphobia? The fear of being around people. And so, so the husband says, well, I'd really like to go to such and such an event. And the wife says, no, no, I don't want to go, but you go ahead, you go ahead, and I'll stay home. Now watch this. And the husband thinks it's fine to just drop that right there. That's a problem with the husband. Okay, wait, wait a minute, Pastor. Sounds like she has the problem. No, no. Because it is not loving for me as a husband to reinforce my wife's insecurity. So every time I give in to insecurities, just using the example that the letter stay home, every time I give in to those insecurities, it triggers something called a reward circuit in the brain. What do you mean a reward? Yeah, she's rewarded because she gets to stay home. She doesn't have to socialize. She doesn't have to feel that pressure. The more of that reward circuit that is triggered in the brain, the more an individual wants that reward. So the more they stay home. And I, I knew of a lady, I, I actually dealt with a lady who under, went through this, and finally she ended up staying in a room. She had four or five kids. Uh, she was on my bus route in Minnesota. She ended up staying in a room. She locked herself in her room and wouldn't leave her room for three years. She drew the curtains, the drapes, and she stayed in her room for three years. Later, when we were talking about it, she told me this. She said, Preacher, those were the dark years in my life. Her kids, her husband would bring her food. Everyone, well, you got Pastor Monty, we're, we're being loving. We're just doing exactly what she wants. How many know that that wasn't the loving thing to do? How many know? No, no. I would never want my wife to slip into darkness, even at her own request. Do you follow what I'm saying here? So insecurity sometimes, people want to control a situation because they're afraid of something. They're afraid of what someone might say. They're afraid of what someone might do. They're afraid, of what, they're afraid sometimes that someone might have a differing opinion from them. That, that's, by the way, how cults get started. Cults are fueled by insecurity. In a cult, insecure people can join that and they never have to think again. And all they have to do is listen to the words of the great leader and they don't have to exercise their own mind and they don't have to have their own opinion. They have the luxury of not thinking, which can be a real luxury to some people. And that is how control, the, the talons of control, sink deeply into the mind of an individual. And it comes from insecurity. Uh, these control can be fear-driven, okay? Insecurity graduates to manipulation. Manipulation meets with capitulation. Are you following me? The fear of people, the manipulating to stay home. I'm just using this as an example the capitulation on the part of the husband who believes that that is somehow showing love, which it is not, the relief that the person feels that they get to stay home, and the reinforced insecurity that makes the problem deeper. We say, Pastor Monty, what's the, what's the answer? The husband ought to rise up and say, no, you're going to go to that social event. No, 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 no. Don't be a bull in a china closet, gentlemen. But the best thing to do is to lead into that area that is a challenge for the other person. And to do so with love and to do so with patience to make sure that that person doesn't, in just the example I'm using, there's lots of examples we could use, to make sure that that person does, does not just fade away socially. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you know what real love is, gentlemen? Real love 
is not reinforcing your wife's insecurity, it's gently leading her out of those insecurities. Real love, ladies, is when you have the courage to kindly speak to your husband about behaviors or bearing that is unacceptable rather than let him look foolish or act foolish. Well, Pastor Monty, I, I could never say a word to him about that. I think you probably could. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever seen people, married people, and the wife has never instructed her husband about clothing? Have you ever seen people like that? I have. So, so Kelly's been very good with me about that because the first time she ever saw me in shorts with white tube socks pulled up to my knees, she rebuked it. Okay, well, you're the pastor. You, she shouldn't, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm thankful for that. How about socks and sandals? Any men guilty of that? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mike, back in the control booth, thank you. You know what? Lovingly, she wanted to simply say to me, you're really tacky. And, and she didn't do that to criticize me or to harm my delicate ego or sense of self. She did it, why? Because she loves me and probably because she just doesn't want to be embarrassed. I, I understand that, okay? And that's an insecurity all its own. But it, it is clear, Saul in his half-baked confession, he says, I was afraid and I did this. But continue reading, verse number 25. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, says Saul, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. These two men, by the way, had had a very strong relationship up until this point. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold on the skirt of his mantle, and it rent, it, it tore. He's trying to, to save the relationship. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. We, of course, know that to be David. And also the strength of Israel, this is a title for God, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. In other words, this declaration, Saul, is one and done, verse number 30. Then he, Saul said, I have sinned, now notice this, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. What's that all about? concern for public image rather than being a person, the right kind of person. He says, Samuel, look, we've we got to go, we got to go into the tabernacle, we've got to worship, just, just walk with me up there so everything thinks it's all, everyone thinks it's all okay. Controlling people worry about that. I've seen families, not in our church, but boy, I've seen them, who have their thumb on their kids to the point of nth, nth degree control mainly because they're worried about their public image. That's never a good motivation. That, that wears out in the eyes and the hearts of young people very, very quickly, and it's a dangerous thing. And then the last thing, and I'll just let you drop down there, verse 35. The Bible says this, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, 
For the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. The loss of a valuable relationship was the result of a man who attempted to control every narrative. Now, how does this translate practically? I want you to see uh, two things, two things. Ephesians, turn there please with me. Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. I'm going to talk first for just a moment about parents and children. Ephesians chapter six, verse four. I referred to this verse earlier in the message. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. There is a level of control that is provoking. It is possible. Well, Pastor Monty, I'm just being a strict and conservative parent. Well, be careful now. Because the Bible clearly says there is a possibility of provoking. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. But, but what are we supposed to do? But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is one thing to lay down the law and then control every move that a child makes. It's another thing to love them and to teach them principles and to teach them about God. Pastor Monty, what if when your kids grow up, they differ in opinion from you? Let me ask you a question right now. How many of you can think, if you thought hard enough and long enough, about at least one thing where your opinion would differ from your dad? Anyone? Probably. How about your mom? Okay. Some of you who didn't raise hands on the dad raised hands on the mom. I don't know what that means. You figure it out. The truth is, we do grow. We have differing opinions. Do you know that that's okay? Well, Pastor Monty, if they don't agree with me on the nth degree of every little thing. I, I, I heard a story recently about a father who wouldn't allow her daughter to have earrings. You know, the pierced ones, the ones with the holes in the ear. I mean, just, you know, the little poke in the ear and then the rings. You know what I'm talking about. Wouldn't allow his daughter to have that. She got married. Several weeks later, her husband was fine with it. She got her ear pierced, ears pierced. And the father wouldn't speak to the daughter for weeks. Look at me. Crazy. Now, because she's now a married woman. She's out from under the authority of that, that father. Does anyone smell control in that? I hope you do. I hope you do. That's a very dangerous type of thing, and, and, and it causes the disintegration of a relationship. So the balance is, and parents figuring out how to uh, bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord without provoking them. Then Ephesians chapter 5, very quickly, very form, uh, famous passage of Scripture, Ephesians 5. I want every eye on this, gentlemen especially. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it. Now I want you to pause. That is a sacrificial love. We talk about that in weddings. Every time we have a wedding, we turn to this passage, and we talk about the self-sacrificing love of the husband that is required. He is to mirror Christ in self-sacrifice. What we don't mention very often is verse 26, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Look this way. The Lord Jesus not only gave himself for our sins in sacrifice, 
but he works in our lives in sanctification to the ultimate good that he will have a church to present to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing. But if you carry the parallel, which is clearly in the passage, if you carry the parallel between the husband's responsibility and Christ's responsibility, it is the husband's responsibility to lead spiritually to present his wife before the Lord. It is his job. So, gentlemen, can I say something? This is really awkward, but I'm just going to say it. You're not only responsible for your spirituality, you're responsible for hers. You're responsible to look into those things, to check into those things. The, an old preacher, I'll not name him, some of you probably know who this is, an old preacher, he's, he's dead now. An old preacher was in a big meeting, a big preacher's meeting, and, and uh, they were elderly by that time. He and his wife both were elderly. She had gotten cancer, and she was very ill, and it was a death sentence. And the doctor said, at the most, you've got, I think they said, six months to live, something like that. And the pastor went home, and he prayed. By his own testimony, he prayed. He said, Lord, he said, uh, six months is not enough time. He used this passage some of you are going to think this is very um, uh, misogynistic, tough. He used this passage and he said, Lord, please give me two more years. He said, I need two more years to make sure she's ready to meet you. Do you know what God did in his grace? Two more years. Do you know what that was? That, that wasn't an inflated idea of who he was. It was a love for his wife and for the moment that she would stand before the Lord. Maybe it was admission to failing a little bit along the way like all of us do as men. Maybe it was that admission. But it was taking responsibility for something that God paralleled in the whole idea of marriage. Not, not to just, well, I'm just going to let it go, but to lovingly, listen carefully, to lovingly and gently lead toward Christ. So what is the Bible way? The Bible way is never manipulation. The Bible way is example and influence. I'm told as a pastor to be an example, an example of the believers. That is the Bible way. It's never manipulation, threat, withholding. It's nothing like that. And it's never driving people into conformity. So it's interesting. The Lord talks about his people, and I'll close with this thought. He talks about his people as sheep. Remember that? Like we're, we're the Lord's sheep, okay? And I'm a shepherd, and the Lord Jesus is the great shepherd. Okay. Do you know what? You cannot drive sheep. It doesn't work well. You lead sheep. Now, you can drive cattle. You can drive cattle all day long. You can shout at them and, and crack the whip at them. You can do that all day long, but not sheep. And God says we lead. Everyone who is gifted in an area of leadership, you don't drive people. That's not going to ever work, okay? Well, that's my, I'm just going to tell them what I think, and I'm going to be real controversial about it. Uh, pardon me, real confrontational about it. I'm just going to let it fly, and I'm going to have my own way. It'll never work. But if you lead and love children, your spouse, anyone that you have responsibility, this, this, anyone, if you gently lead and love God will use that, not because you're trying to control, twist a situation, or manipulate, but because you're trying to say, hey, let's go this way. This way is God's way, and let's go this way together. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the difference between harmony and arguing. 
It is the difference between peace and unrest. It is when I say, I don't always have to have my own way. I don't always have to control. And the saddest part of the whole story, like King Saul, he lost the best friend he had. And I'll finish by saying this. Controlling people don't usually win in the areas of friendship. They just don't. They just don't. Hey, let's avoid that. Be balanced people tonight. Father, I pray you'll take the thoughts this evening and help us, Lord. We really need the Holy Spirit of God to apply these things individually in our own hearts and lives as we've lifted up the mirror of the Word of God. And in a passage that is heart-wrenching, to see some truly practical thoughts. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive about maybe where some things that we do are manipulative or controlling. Help us, Lord, to really be sensitive about that. Help us, Lord, to understand that it, it doesn't work in the long run. It might in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long run. And then, Lord, often we lose the most valuable relationships we have. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll give a special insight into these thoughts tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Let's stand, please, together, everyone. (coughs) 